Welcome back to Bible Love. We are coming to you on the 27th, which is the feast day of St. John Chrysostom. And so the colic for his feast day is our prayer. Let us pray. O God, you gave your servant John Chrysostom grace eloquently to proclaim your righteousness in the great congregation and fearlessly to bear reproach for the honor of your name. Mercifully grant to all bishops and pastors such excellence in preaching and faithfulness in ministering your word, that your people may be partakers with them of the glory that shall be revealed. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, listeners, it's our favorite guest that's back. I think this is your third time on the podcast, which means we love you and you're part of the Bible Love Podcast family. Someone who is is a dear friend to both Alan and I, and that has happened over this time, is the Reverend Dr. Tony Hopkins. Thank you, Tony, for being here with us today. And we couldn't think of a better person to help us think about the overview of the book, first book of Samuel. So that's where we are, y'all. Um, we're going to take some time to dig into that over the next couple of weeks. But before we do, wanted to give you a good overview of that. And Tony is an amazing teacher and came prepared and has a lot to tell us about. So this very interesting book of the Bible. So welcome, Tony. Thank so, you so much. I'm just delighted to be back. I'm a very faithful listener, and so I'm happy to be be back with you again. I'm honored. Yeah, well, one of my favorite things to do is Tony and I have lunch every month, and we're very secretive about our lunches. We don't let other people come because we just want to have lunch together. Uh, but he always gives me like fantastic feedback about the podcast, and so we're so glad you're here. So tell us some of your thoughts about the first book of Samuel, Tony? Well, the first thing I'll say is that uh, in the Hebrew Bible, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel are one book. Uh, this, is, this is a relatively late and uh, Christian division. Uh, 1 and 2 Samuel are one book. 1 and 2 Kings are one book. 1 and 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. So all of those that we've divided into half are one book each in the Hebrew Bible. And then what we call the Minor Prophets is the Book of the Twelve. So interestingly, the Hebrew Bible has 24 books, where the Protestant Old Testament has 39. But, but its place in the canon, of course, this is part of the prophets. You have the law, and now we're in the prophets. We are also in what's called the Deuteronomistic history. From Deuteronomy to 2 Kings, we get the history of Israel from the entry into the land. That's around 1250 BCE uh, through the exile, 586. So this book particularly is 11th century. Um, most scholars date the reign of King Saul around 1020 or 1022 BCE to around 1,000. David's reign begins about 1,000 BCE. So that's an easy number to remember, a place you can kind of put a historical peg. Um, the book begins with Hannah, one of these matriarchs in scripture who cries out to God wanting to have a child. So she reminds us of Sarah and Rachel and the mother of Gideon in the book of Judges. And of course, she foreshadows then Elizabeth in the New Testament. 
And then the book ends with the death of King Saul. So Genesis ended with the death of Joseph, Exodus with the death of Moses. Uh, the book of Joshua ends with the book of Joshua. So we're seeing some patterns that we've seen throughout the Hebrew Bible so far. And I said to Mary Balfour, we had lunch last week, I said, I know Alan usually names the podcast, but this podcast could be called Three Men in an Ark yeah. because there's this set of stories about the Ark of the Covenant in chapters four, five, and six. And then otherwise, this book is really about Samuel, Saul, and David. Um, the Ark of the Covenant, you remember, is the box that the Hebrews kept the Ten Commandments in. Eventually, it would become the centerpiece of Solomon's temple. And I think the, same, the story in 1 Samuel 4 illustrates the importance of the Ark of the Covenant as well as anything in the Hebrew Bible. The Israelites are battling with the Philistines. They have the Ark with them. And the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, Eli, the priest, is waiting near the edge of town for news from the battle when the messenger comes and says, we've lost the ark. He has a heart attack and dies. At the same time, Eli's daughter-in-law is giving birth when she hears that they've lost the ark. The handmaids who are attending her try to encourage her by saying, you've had a son. Every woman wanted to have sons. But without the Ark of the Covenant, she has no will to live. And with her final breath, she says, name my son Ichabod, which means the glory of God has departed. So you see uh, how important this was to the Israelites. Tony, can I stop you? Two questions that kind of are sticking out to me. First of all, I wanted to go back to I don't know if you use this word, but like sort of the repetitiveness of some of the Hebrew Bible and how it begins and how it starts that that I don't know why. And I'm sorry, Steve Bishop, um, who I love very much, my Old Testament professor, but I don't know why that hasn't stuck with me before. But I think that's interesting to people when we think about like how the Bible was put together. It wasn't like, let's just put a bunch of books of the Bible together maybe try to put some history together. Like someone was really thinking about this, you know, in a beautiful way that connects it all. Does that kind of resonate with you? I just hadn't, I don't know why, but I hadn't gotten it there. I, I see that more in the New Testament, but I'm really glad to hear that that's there in the Old Testament. There's well. some great storytellers uh, that help us have scripture. Um you know, I didn't mention authorship because we don't really know who wrote First Samuel, but it seems clear that there are several literary strands and I think probably oral tradition strands behind the literary strands. And so I appreciate all of those people, but I really appreciate an editor who gathered up all of that for us. You know, the editor could have said, well, you know, these two stories are kind of in tension with one another, so I'm going to leave one of them out. And we're so blessed that in the providence of God, the editor said, no, each of these have something to offer us. Uh, so you see that within the book. And then, as you were talking about, Mary Balfour, when you look at the Hebrew Bible and then transition in the New Testament, these people paid attention to the way the people before them had told stories. Um, and, I, and I love that. Well, and we just saw that. I don't think 
Alan preached yesterday, but I did. We just saw that in the lectionary, right? Where this was Jesus's from Luke, Jesus's first sort of public ministry. And he like pulls out the scribes, right? And quotes Isaiah. And, you know, and so again, like, I think this is helpful to kind of see what you're talking about and that. And then I just want us to talk for a minute about the Ark of the Covenant. Like, I mean, and that importance, like, I don't know if I ever thought about that before that someone actually was like, God is gone after that. You know, what do y'all think about that? Do what? I was just saying how important that she would feel that way, you know? Yeah. To me, you know, I think when we lose loved ones now, we try to find ways to carry with us the things that are important, memory boxes, foot lockers. Like you think like there's literal boxes that we move from house to house. Sometimes they contain ashes. Sometimes they contain mementos, right? To me, that's how I kind of envision the ark. I mean, there's the religious significance to it as well, but it's people carrying from house to house a box that reminds them of the person that they want to be close to. I think it was tremendously important to um, the Israelites and and the, the 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 mother who, with her final breath, names her child Ichabod. Is I mean, it, it just it just hits me in the chest. Uh, but then talking about great storytelling in the very next chapter, uh, the writer or editor shows a sense of humor because there's several stories about the perils of having the ark. If you're not the Israelites, several bad things happen to the Philistines, but the most interesting one is a plague comes among the Philistines. And the writer says that those who didn't die were struck with the new RSV says tumors, but the King James translates that word hemorrhoids. (laughs) So the only appearance as far as I know of, of hemorrhoids in the Bible. Uh, here in First Samuel, who knew? Who knew it was going to be in First Samuel? Yeah, very colorful. Hopefully, we get to talk about that when Jimmy Hartley is our guest. Okay, then yeah. the two, Jimmy and Alan, can just go back and forth about hemorrhoids and and t- and I'm going to keep calling them tumors. <laughs> There's a reason I like the NRSV. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. Well, the other thing we have to talk about with 1 Samuel is is the evolution of the monarchy. Um, In 1 Samuel, this is the place where Israel gets a king for the first time. Samuel is a transitional figure. Samuel is named as both a prophet and a judge. There are only two people in the Hebrew Bible that get both of those titles. The other is Deborah. Deborah is both a prophet and a judge. Samuel is both a prophet and a judge. Although once Saul becomes king, then Samuel's only role is to be prophet because Israel now has a king. Interestingly, the the kingship is cast in pretty negative terms. Uh, The impression is that Israel doesn't significantly value its uniqueness as the people of God. They want a king to be like the other nations. You know, I think about when my kids were teenagers and they wanted to wear what the other kids were wearing. I mean, that's kind of the way the kingship is in Israel. Um, And uh, God actually says, I'm going to let the people have a king because they have rejected me from being king over them. So it's it's not off to a great start. I mentioned a minute ago how much I appreciate the, the editor, including different literary strands. There are three different traditions about how Saul becomes king. 
I think the most well-known one is he goes out looking for his family's donkeys and Yahweh sends Samuel to anoint him. That's very private and informal, but there's also a formal gathering of all the Israelites. They cast lots to narrow down to the tribe of Benjamin. Then they cast lots again to narrow down to Saul's family. And then they repeatedly cast the lots until they land on Saul. Uh, Thirdly, uh, there's a story in which Saul defeats the Ammonites and he seems to rise to power by virtue of his military leadership. So interestingly, different literary strands, all kind of contributing something to our picture. There are also three stories about the demise of Saul. And the first one is painful to me. Uh, The Philistines have encamped against Israel. As was often the case, the prophet's going to come and offer a sacrifice to Yahweh before they go into battle. And Samuel says, I'll be there in a week. Well, a week passes and Samuel hasn't shown up. And Saul's troops are beginning to disappear. And so Saul says, I better go ahead and do this sacrifice before I lose my army. And as soon as he does the sacrifice, Samuel, who wasn't where he was supposed to be, shows up, condemns Saul, and pronounces doom on his kingship. So so in that sense, for me, Saul is, is kind of a sympathetic figure and kind of a tragic figure. That story has always seemed uh, very painful to me. And then, keeping with our theme of threes, there are three stories about David's rise to prominence. David and Goliath, the best known of those stories, I believe that's the longest story or pericope in 1 Samuel. So that tells you, how important that tradition was in Israel's collective memory. Uh, But my favorite of those stories is Samuel comes to the house of Jesse. The prophet understandably assumes the oldest son, Eliab, is going to be the one that God chooses to be Saul's successor now that that his kingship has been doomed. Uh, But it's not Eliab. And they go through all the sons. And Samuel says, "Is, is this it? And they said, well, there's one more. He's the youngest (laughs) and he's out tending the sheep. And of course, it's David. And this is the story, 1 Samuel 16, that gives us that great line. Yahweh does not see the way human beings see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. There's there's some great uh, preaching material right there. Yeah, because Tony, I was going to, one of my questions, and I think you just sort of answered it right there is, you know, besides like understanding the history, you know, understanding all of that, like what can we gain from some of these stories in Samuel as believers, as followers? And I think that you just hit on one right there with David was not the likely person to predict, but and he was certainly a sinner. He was certainly very human. I mean, that's one of the things I like about David is his humanness. I can relate to that. Um, But that's who God called, you know, and so I think that we can think about that as humans, right? Like we don't have to be perfect. We just have to be the person that God made us and live into that, that, and that is enough. Um, But I, you know, some of these other stories, you know, what are some of the, Besides the history and that it's important, it's the Bible, you know, what are things we as humans can learn from that? You know, and and that's a big one for me is David in this book of Samuel. I think so, too. I think that's uh, it's one of my favorite 
stories from from First Samuel. I think the other thing that First Samuel teaches us is leadership is hard. So if you're a leader, give yourself some grace. And if you are uh, a follower, uh, you know, if you're if you're a pastor, don't expect to be perfect. And if you're a church member, don't expect your leaders to be perfect um, because leadership is hard. And boy, uh, hasn't COVID reminded us of that, that leadership is hard. Yeah, we were listeners. We were all three kind of discussing before we got on that, you know, this COVID stuff, you think you're, you know, in a good spot, people are coming back to church and then, you know, we've got a new variant and it goes down and making these decisions. And it's not just leadership in the church, it's leadership everywhere, right? Wherever you're a leader, you're in charge of something or boss or whatever, what is the right thing to do, you know? And so David can be a great example of that, of not always knowing what the right thing to do is, but trusting God. The other answer, I think, Mary Balfour, to your question is uh, look at the relationship between Jonathan and David. Uh, the maybe the most beautiful uh, narrative about a friendship in, in all of the scriptures. Um, each is said to love the other more than he loves life itself, more than he loves himself. And Jonathan, especially. Um, Jonathan should have been the next king. But Jonathan sacrifices that for his friendship with David. I mean, that's a remarkable story. So that tells us something about what's really important in life. It teaches us something about what healthy relationships look like. And David has some bad moments. Most of those are in 2 Samuel, so I don't have to deal with those. But maybe David's best moment in 1 Samuel There are two traditions about David having opportunities. You know, Saul becomes jealous of David. Uh, We have a picture in 1 Samuel of of Saul's mental, emotional, spiritual health declining. He seems to be what we would call mentally ill by the end of the book. But when uh, Saul hears the women in the street singing, Saul has slain his thousands and David has slain his ten thousands. That that moment of jealousy triggers something in Saul. He tries to kill David personally. He tries to give him dangerous military duty. He says, I'll let you marry the daughter, my daughter, Michael, if you kill 100 Philistines, thinking David will get killed in the process. David then has two opportunities to take Saul's life, and he doesn't do it. And it's portrayed as his respect for the Lord's anointing. No one should ever lift their hand against the Lord's anointed. And it seems to be a very genuine kind of piety because killing Saul would advance David's cause. But he has more respect for whom God has chosen to be king than he has personal ambition. So this is one of David's really good moments. But in the second of those stories, after David has had the opportunity to kill Saul, he's in Saul's camp. He comes out outside of the camp. He calls out to Saul. First, he chastises Saul's bodyguard because the bodyguard let David get in where he could have killed Saul. But when Saul hears David, he says, David, my son, is that you? They have a very complex relationship. And David says, why are you pursuing me? Or you could translate that. Why are you persecuting me? 
and talk about great storytelling in the Bible, Luke seizes on that story. And in the ninth chapter of Acts, Saul of Tarsus, who like King Saul is a Benjaminite, so he's a descendant of King Saul. He's on the road to Damascus. He's struck blind. And Christ speaks to him. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In the Greek version of the Old Testament, the words that Christ, the descendant of David, speaks to Saul of Tarsus, the descendant of King Saul, are exactly the same as they are in 1 Samuel. It's just marvelous, marvelous storytelling. And in between, I said before, we've got to talk about this story, one of the colorful idioms of the Hebrew Bible. In between those two stories, we, get, we meet uh, Nabal and Abigail. Nabal is a very wealthy man. David now, he's on the run. I mean, he hadn't done anything wrong, but when the king's against you, you're a fugitive. So he's gathering people to himself, and he sends to a very wealthy man named Nabal, who could have easily afforded to do it, a request to provide hospitality, provide a meal for him and his men. And Nabal says, I'm not going to do it. Uh, Nabal's wife, Abigail, and this enrages David. David says, everybody strap on your swords. We're going to go get this guy. And Abigail's wife hears what Nabal has done. She gathers wine and food and animals to be slaughtered and goes to meet David, intercepts David, says, you know, my husband's name means fool. And that's really what he is. You got to forgive him. You got to overlook him. And David thanks Abigail, not just for her hospitality, but he says, you know, you, you saved me from having blood guilt on my hand. In my anger, in my rage, I would have killed Nabal and all of his men. That's how it usually gets translated. But what the Hebrew actually says is there by the morning light, there would not have been left to Nabal. And I'm going to quote the King James Bible. There would not have been left to Nabal any that pisseth against the wall, which is an idiom for being male, because if you're male, you can aim it at the wall. Uh, fascinating, these very colorful images and idioms that we find in the Bible. And of course, translators know that we've got to preach from these texts on Sunday morning, so they kind of smooth that stuff out. Us, right? What are they I doing? I can imagine. Now? My 11 and 13 year olds sitting out there. Number one, they just hate that their dad preaches because they're always afraid I'm going to say something about them. But then right. if I talk about the, you know, no one that pees against the wall is going to be left. Like they would just lose it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think for any of us, if, if, if we said that in a sermon, nobody would hear anything else we said. You know, that would be it. That would be it for the day. Have the benediction. Everybody go home. Well, it's the, it's the same when you get the verses and, you know, uh, the epistles about circumcision and all that. Like, that's all they do is concentrate right. on that stuff. And they're like, nobody can do anything I've said. I can't, I can't wait till you guys get to the Song of Solomon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you got like goats on the mountaintop that actually means like sexual yeah. organs and all that. I remember being in college. We'll talk about this when we get to Song of Solomon. And Tommy Nelson is a Baptist preacher here in north texas and he has this you know 20 years old but the song of solomon thing and he dives in and of course i'm in college when he's doing this i'm like this is crazy right like to me the bible's this children's thing right now I'm like, oh my gosh yeah. 
Well, again, you know, these are real people. And they say very colorful things just like we say very colorful things. You know, I ask my wife, uh, well, I'll put it this way. When I'm watching sports, I expand my vocabulary. Um, So, As we all do. Real people. Moments in our lives, right? Um, Somebody gave me one of those hand towels, one of my first years did, that says, I love Jesus, but I cuss a little bit. You know, it's just part of who we are. And um, it's okay. Oh my gosh, there's so much to unpack in this in the next four weeks or whatever. And I think we've got a lot of guests with us too, Alan, which is good to kind of go through this. Um, I, do I have time to talk about one more story? Sure. Yeah, of course. The, the, the other thing that's, that I think is fascinating about Samuel, again, think about how patriarchal this time was. Samuel begins with a story that centers on a woman, Hannah. And then it ends with a story that centers on a woman, the medium at Endor. One of those fascinating and, and, and whatever heartbreak you're going to have over King Saul is going to is going to come to its peak with this story. Samuel has died. Saul has put the mediums and wizards out of the land. Saul, in the sunshine of prosperity, has said, we are God's people. We're not going to have witchcraft. We're not going to have sorcery. We're not going to have necromancy, speaking with the dead. We don't do that. We're God's people. And he's right to say that. But then uh, there are a series of events that threaten Israel and threaten Saul personally. And late one night, after everybody in the castle has gone to sleep, he puts on a wig and a fake beard and mustache and a trench coat and a wide-brimmed hat And he slips out the back door of the castle and goes to the little village of Endor because there is a woman there who is said to be a medium. And he says to the woman, I want you to call up someone. She says, you know, the king has forbidden that. He says, it's okay, it's okay. Call up Samuel. And when the woman sees Samuel, she realizes who Saul is and cries out, you're the king. Why have you laid this snare for my life to take it away? Saul says, I'm not going to tell anybody. Why do you think I'm dressed like this? And Samuel says, why have you disturbed me? Saul says, the Philistines are encamped against me at Shunem, and their army greatly outnumbers mine. I have asked the word, asked the prophets for a word from the Lord, but they just shake their heads. I have rolled the sacred dice, but they come up empty. I've asked God to speak to me in a dream, but I want so badly to have the dream that most of the time I can't even go to sleep. And so I've summoned you to tell me what to do. This king who in the sunshine not only determined that he would do the right thing, but made that pronouncement for all of his people does the very thing that he himself has said will not be tolerated in his kingdom. So talk about New Testament connections now. Fast forward a thousand years to Romans 7, where Paul says, what I do is not the thing I want, but I do the very thing that I do not want. When I say I'm going to do good, I'm going to do what God wants me to do, I'm not trying to fool anybody, least of all God. And yet somehow at the end of the day, 
When I sit down on my bed to take off my shoes, I've done the very thing that I wasn't going to do. So Mary Balfour, you know, what can we take from these stories? There's something else you can add to your list. The human condition. The human condition. Beautiful. I can't think of any better way to end it than right there. Tony, we love you. Of course, this will not be the last time you will be on the podcast. Thank you for your wisdom, your teaching, and your guidance today. Listeners, Great to be with you guys. Absolutely. Listeners, remember that we love you, but most importantly, God does.